what he sees inside takes his breath away. Beautiful, glittering, gleaming, twinkling, sparkling, precious jewels. It's a treasure chest. He wants that treasure. He needs to get that treasure. He must have that treasure somehow. Even if he has to sell everything he has so he can pay for it. He quickly buries the treasure again, runs home and sells everything he has. He takes the money from the sale and goes and buys that field. Now he owns the field and the treasure that is buried in it. He runs back and digs up the treasure again. Jesus said, Coming home to God is as wonderful as finding a treasure. You might have to dig before you find it. You might have to look before you see it. You might even have to give up everything you have to get it. But being where God is, being in his kingdom, that's more important than anything else in all the world. It's worth anything you have to give up, Jesus tells us. Because God is the real treasure. God had a treasure too, of course. A treasure that was lost long, long ago. What was God's treasure? His most important thing? The thing God loved best in all the world? God's treasure was his children. It was why Jesus had come into the world, to find God's treasure and pay the price to win them back. And Jesus would do it, even if it cost him everything he had. These five men have one thing in common. No, they're not the five guys that I know that forgot about Valentine's Day. <laughs> These five guys all died searching for treasure. Jeff Murphy, he plummeted to his death as he slipped off of a cliff in Yellowstone. Eric Ashby drowned in the Arkansas River. Randy Ballou drowned in the Rio Grande River. Mike Sexton died of hypothermia near Dinosaur National Monument. And Paris Wallace, who was a pastor, drowned in the Rio Grande River near the Taos Junction Bridge. They were all looking for Finn's treasure. Forrest Finn's treasure. Forrest Finn was an art dealer in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And in 1988, uh, he was told that he was going to, to die, that he had cancer, and that he had about a year, maybe a year and a half left uh, to, uh, to live. And he loved the area he lived in. He loved the Rockies. He loved being out there. Uh, and he wanted other people, as, he's, as he said, he was quoted as saying, to get off their couches and get out there in nature. So he concocted this idea that he was going to create a treasure hunt. So he put together a, a box of treasure filled with 265 gold coins, hundreds of gold nuggets, hundreds of rubies, eight emeralds, two Cylon sapphires, diamonds, two ancient Chinese, Chinese jade carvings, two pre-Columbian gold bracelets, and a whole bunch more. The whole treasure chest was worth more than $2 million. He hid that box somewhere between Santa Fe and the Canadian border. And then he wrote a book called The Thrill of the Chase. 
And in that book, there was a, a map and some poems that gave the clues to the treasure. Well, those five men lost their lives searching for Finn's treasure. It's estimated that 65,000 other people spent time looking for that treasure. And they spent millions of dollars. And many a day, many a month, many a year, many people even moved to the area to actually search harder for Forrest Finn's treasure. Because so many of them said... It was worth it. It was worth it. Pray with me, if you will. Father, we praise you for this day. And we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for allowing us to gather, to, to look at it deeply, and to gain from it. And I pray that in this time, that our hearts would be, be open and filled by you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text is in Matthew 13. Uh, in Matthew 13, Jesus uh, rolls out seven parables about the kingdom. Uh, we, we've all heard them and know them, uh, but we're going to walk through them just to give us a, a background feel to it. So Jesus says that he leaves the house. He, presumably, this is Peter's house in, in Capernaum, and he goes down to the Sea of Galilee to teach. And People are pressing in on him. The crowds are getting thicker and thicker. So he steps into a boat, pushes offshore a bit, and he teaches from the boat. And he teaches these four parables. The first is the, the parable of the sower. Uh, he explains it. Uh, the seed is the word of God. and Some of that seed is being sown, throws on, on the road, the birds eat it. And that's the evil one snatching it away before it can take root. Then some of the seed falls in rocky places, and that's where the hearer receives the word. Uh, but bef before he has real joy and his roots are real shallow, he fades away, and that's when the tough times come. Now some of the seed falls around the thorns. The hearer hears, the thorns come up and, and squeeze out all of the fruitfulness. But there is that seed that falls on, on good ground. The hearer understands he bears fruit hundred times. Now the second parable, also a, a wheat and seed in the ground kind of a parable. Uh, the owner of this field sows seed and wheat into his, his land. But that night, his enemy shows up. And he sows tares. It's a, a weed. kind of looks like wheat, but it's not. It can actually be poisonous. The harvest is coming the wheat and the tares are divided. At that point, the tares are burned. The wheat comes into the barn. So then the third kingdom parable, the short one, it's a mustard seed. This tiny, tiny little seed. I remember as a child, my grandmother had this Bible that had a zipper on it. And on the end of that zipper, uh, there was this little, it was like a marble, really tiny. But inside of it was a mustard seed. You could just barely see it. And Jesus says this mustard seed is a tiny little seed, but it grows into a huge tree uh, for all the world to see. And the fourth is the parable of the leaven, where the woman puts leaven or yeast into some bread or some flour, and it filters through all of it in a matter of time. Well, then Jesus leaves the crowd, he and his disciples, and they go back to Peter's house. And the disciples ask him to explain the wheat and the tares, and he does. 
And then they're thinking, okay, these four parables that Jesus just taught, these, this is the disciples thinking, the four ter- par- these kingdom parables Jesus just taught, they take a long time to occur. It's either a season or a lifetime. They're kind of slow. The miracles that they've seen Jesus do, the, the prophecies that they know about the Messiah, have brought their hopes up that Jesus is going to overthrow the Romans and that he would become king and, and everything would be fantastic. But these kingdom parables that he's just told, they're, they're way too slow. Way too slow. Then Jesus tells a couple more parables, and that's where we'll pick it up in verse 44. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went, sold all he had, and bought it. Now, there's some excitement in finding treasure. Whether it's Forrest Finn's treasure of millions of dollars, or when our kids were small and it was a rainy, nasty day, I would hide pennies through the house for them to find. And it was just as much fun. Now imagine this one-verse parable for a moment. Imagine it expanding a bit, because in my mind, it's a whole lot more than just one verse. So use your creatively redeemed minds with me for a moment. So this man, Simon, that's what I've named him, he, uh, he's walking through his, neighbor fi- his neighbor's field every day to go to town, to go to work. Day after day, year after year, he gets bored with it. Sometimes he walks around the field clockwise, sometimes counterclockwise. When the field's dormant and there's nothing there, he might zigzag through the field. But one day he's walking through, and it sounds a little bit hollow under his foot that's new and he leans over and he digs down with his hand a little bit and he finds just the top of a wooden box he thinks i gotta come back and dig this thing up i need to go get a shovel so maybe later on in the day maybe as dusk is setting in it's a little darker so people can't see him he goes out he digs that thing up gets it up out of the ground pries it open sees the treasure inside. He thinks this is maybe a hundred, maybe a thousand, maybe ten thousand times more than I'll ever earn in my lifetime. The excitement is just overwhelming. He has found a treasure worth anything he can imagine. He covers it back up. And he thinks, if I own this land, then the treasure is mine. So he goes back home. He says, Beulah, that's her name in my story. Beulah, we are selling everything we have. Don't, m- never mind why we're doing it. There's a field that I know we have to buy. They sell it all. He goes to the field's owner, offers him an offer that he can't refuse, and he buys the field, and the treasure is his. Now, Jesus tells a second parable right after it. It's similar, but there are some distinctions, and we'll talk about those as we go along. A little background, Israel is at the corner of three continents. The, uh, the, the crisscrossed routes of the area of trade uh, bring the very best of jewels and gold and spices, fabrics and foods. They're all there. 
and pearls were the costliest jewels of the time. The Romans loved pearls, and that drove up the price of pearls. They were in high demand, maybe like diamonds today. Now, this merchant, Reuben, most likely a jeweler, he's in search for fine pearls. So he's in the city market. He comes up to this one merchant's stall, and he says, show me something special. Merchant says, well, how special? Reuben says, something so special that you've never shown it to anybody else because you're afraid that they'll kill you for it. Merchant leaves, a couple moments, comes back. Got this little pouch of velvet that he spills into his hand. This perfect milky orb is three times bigger than a Galilean grape. And Reuben says to himself, I've got to get that pearl because it's maybe a hundred, a thousand, maybe 10,000 times more valuable than what I'll make in a lifetime. So he tells the merchant, I'll be back in a few days. We'll talk about the price. He runs home because he's excited. He gets home. Phoebe, that's her name in my story. Phoebe, we have to sell everything never mind why but there's this pearl that we're going to buy sure enough he sells everything he makes his way back to the market back to that merchant makes him an offer he can't refuse and the pearl is his so what do we learn from these two parables what do we learn from these two parables well one thing uh, that we we know is not about these two parables is that these parables are not about eternal salvation many many times these parables have been taught uh, as salvation stories that we have to sell everything to buy our salvation that we have to give everything away everything that's precious to us we have to get rid of it we have to sell it so we can purchase our salvation that is the furthest thing from the truth from a God that we know is full of love and grace. Isaiah 55 starts out, Come, all ye who are thirsty, come to the waters, you who have no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what's not bread, on what's not food? Give ear and come to me, listen, that you may live. And Romans 5.15 says, but the free gift, the free gift, is not like the transgression. No. For by the transgression of one, Adam, the many died, but much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounds to the many. Or Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. There's just too much scriptural evidence that God's free gift of eternal life is ours for the taking. And it's like any other gift. To make it yours, you have to receive it. You have to do that yourself. You can't do it as a group. You can't do it as a family. You can't have 
you know, grandparents who used you used to know who were believers, and because of that, it somehow trickles down. No, you have to make that decision yourself. You have to say, yes, I believe that God sent Jesus to live a perfect life, to die and to pay the penalty for my sin. I believe that. And if you're sitting out there right now or if you're at home watching this on your computer and you've not made that kind of decision, let me encourage you right now to do that very thing, to make that decision that, yes, you believe that that free gift of salvation is yours. So what do we learn about the kingdom? Well, first we learn that the kingdom is accessible. It is at hand. Jesus talks about the kingdom over a hundred times through the Gospels, and many of those are about how, how it's at hand, how close uh, the kingdom is, how near the kingdom is. Uh, the treasure was right there in the field the whole time that the man had walked over. The pearl was probably in the market for a very long time. It was accessible. It was there. But there's this great mystery about the kingdom. It's talked about something that we should anticipate coming, but at the same time, it's talked about that we are a part of it now. You see, God, God's kingdom is coming, yes, and we are a part of it now. It's, it feels like a paradox, but again, it's not. Jesus even says he wants us to pray that his kingdom would come, uh, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's just a reminder that things aren't the way they ought to be here, but one day they will be. But until then, we are still part of his rule and reign. We are still part of his kingdom here and now. And we are, as Mark said earlier, the salt and the light. And we are the, the ambassadors for that kingdom right now. The kingdom is boundless or boundaryless. The treasure, the pearl, they could have been anywhere. They could have been in many cities, states. They could have been anywhere. And we're saved into this kingdom that is above all others. It's this reality, this new reality, that we are citizens of a new kingdom, a new place. We get to enjoy the joy and the shalom of the kingdom. Yet at the same time, we're experiencing the pain of this world. But we are a glimpse a glimpse of the fullness of the kingdom to come. We are the salt and light. We are the ambassadors. We are representatives of the king, the kingdom that is to come. We also learn that the kingdom is valuable, more valuable than anything we could ever imagine. A hundred, a thousand, maybe 10,000 times more than anything we can imagine. I learned recently that an on-street parking spot in Manhattan, about 150 square feet, is valued at a million dollars. A million dollars. There are also three million on-street parking, parking spots in Manhattan. Kind of hard to even imagine the value of a parking space being that much. But there's nothing more valuable than the kingdom of heaven. No treasure, no relationship, no status, no accomplishments or business, no technology, no number of social media likes 
No opportunities, no opinions, no pleasure, pain, your health, your wealth, your well-being. There is nothing more valuable than the kingdom. Next, we learn that the kingdom is attractive. It's attractive. When you get a glimpse of the kingdom, you can't stop thinking about it. Not in a temptation sort of way, like Turkish delight in Narnia. No, it's more of an enamored sort of way. I remember as a kid going to the Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian, making my way up to the Hall of Gems and Minerals. And in this dimly lit room where there's one shaft of light in the middle, there were just tons of people shoulder to shoulder staring at a rock. That rock was the Hope Diamond, 45 carats of sparkly diamond, and these people were enamored. In fact, they were walking around from different angles to, to view it because the treasure was mesmerizing. Well, the kingdom is attractive, and after you've experienced the joy and the peace of the kingdom, you cannot forget about it. Now, earlier this week, I hid some treasure in this room. And for you folks in F3, there's some treasure hidden in that room as well. And right now, you can't stop thinking about it. Because it's attractive. You don't know where it is. You don't know how big it is. But you still can't stop thinking about it. Because the kingdom is attractive. The kingdom is also meant to be found. Unintentionally or intentionally, the kingdom is meant to be found. Again, feels like a paradox, but it's really not. The man in the field, he didn't have a map. He didn't have clues. He wasn't actually treasure hunting with equipment. He didn't have metal detectors back then. He basically stumbles upon it. The Samaritan woman at the well, she wasn't looking for the kingdom, but she found it. Paul, he wasn't looking for the kingdom either on the road to Damascus, but he found it. Charles Spurgeon, he grew up in a Christian home, went to church every Sunday. He was well known for that. He's 15 years old. It's New Year's Day. It's a Sunday, and he decides he needs to go to church. It's snowing, and the storm is immense. Uh, but this is what he writes. He says, when I could go no further... I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist church. The preacher uh, who was to conduct this service never got there because of the storm. And quickly, one of the elders had to be brought forward to conduct the service and the congregation of maybe 15 people. He says, I thought the man was stupid. His text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And he just kept repeating it because that's all he had. And then his eye caught mine, and he said, Young man, you look very miserable. And miserable in life is miserable in death, and you will be if you don't obey my text. And then he shouted, Young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look to Jesus. And Spurgeon writes, And I did. And right then and there, the cloud was gone. The darkness of my mind rolled away. And in that moment, I saw the Son of God. He wasn't looking for the kingdom in that primitive Methodist church, but he found it. 
How many times have you been reading through scripture, maybe a, a piece of scripture you've read through dozens of times, and then all in a moment, boom, takes on a brand new, fresh meaning. You just stumbled upon treasure. Now, on the other hand, the merchant, he was actively looking for a pearl. He was actively searching for a pearl. The Ethiopian eunuch, as he's sitting in his chariot, he is pouring through scripture. He's reading Isaiah. Philip shows up, literally shows up, and he asks Philip to explain it to him, and he does. And in a moment, he gets saved, he gets baptized, boom. He's searching for the kingdom, and he finds it. A few years ago, Christopher Young spoke here, and he told his life-changing story, this life-changing story from a, a gay drug dealer that ended up in prison to a Christ follower who learned to lean completely on Christ in his struggles. While Christopher was in prison, he began to read his Bible over and over and over again. As he said, I had plenty of time on my hands. He was searching for answers and meaning. And he found them both in the person of Jesus Christ. So the kingdom was meant to be found, unintentionally or intentionally. And God uses both paths with amazing effectiveness. So there's Jesus teaching his disciples in Peter's house that the kingdom is accessible. It has no boundaries. It's beyond value. It's amazingly attractive. And it's meant to be found. Imagine your disciples sitting there thinking, the kingdom, it's worth nothing without the king. The kingdom most, kingdom's most valuable asset is the king. It's the king. The king is the most preeminent being of the kingdom. He's the most valuable part it's his rule and reign that creates order and purpose for its citizens. And the king is near. And knowing the king in a deep, rich, intimate way, it's worth every penny we have. It's worth it. It's worth it. By now, the, the sun was setting. And the Jews together would have been reciting the Shema. It's a it's a twice-daily prayer in the Jewish tradition. Uh, they pray it in the morning and in the evening. It's been prayed for thousands of years. And this would have been about the time they would have been reciting it together. And it starts out, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Blessed is the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your might. These words I am commanding you today to put on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. Talk to them when you sit in your house and walk by the way. When you lie down, when you rise up, you'll bind them on your hands and on your head. You'll write them on the doorposts of your, of your house. Jesus even used the Shema as he was answering that age-old question of what's the greatest commandment it's in mark 12 and we'll start in 28 it says one of the scribes came and, and heard them arguing and recognized him and he answered them and he said what commandment is the foremost of all and jesus says the foremost is hear o israel the lord your god is one lord and you shall love him with all your heart 
mind and soul and strength. And the second is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. There are no greater commandments than this. This glorious kingdom is this place where we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and to teach others to do the same. The treasure is the king, this preeminent being of the kingdom. He's near, he's at hand, and he's worth it. Now again, entry into the kingdom is a free gift. There is nothing you can do to earn that. You can only trust in it and receive it as your own. But as you understand, as you understand the extravagance of this gift, the amazingness of this gift, the outlandish love of this gift, our next and purposeful response should be to love the giver, to love the king with all of our heart, mind, and soul. How do we go about this? What does that look like? Well, first you have to realize that in the moment that you make that step of faith, you are different. Nothing you do makes it different, but you are different. In that moment, because of Christ in you, you have a new identity. There are many, many, many things, and there's a whole list of them um, throughout scriptures. And then on the back of the sermon notes, there's a, a, a list, not a complete list, but it's a full page. It's also, if you're looking online, in the notes online, it's at the bottom of the notes online. That's just the beginnings of what's different about you. Your position in Christ is thoroughly different the moment you make that step, and it allows you to realize some things. I'm going to read a few of them, but let me, I'm going to encourage you to, to continue on later on. John 1.12 says, I am a child of God. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, I've been bought with a price, and now I belong to God. Colossians 1.14 says, I have been forgiven all of my sins. Past, present, future, all of my sins. Romans 8, 35 through 39 tells me that I cannot be separated from the love of God. Philippians 3, 20 says, I am a citizen of heaven. John 15, 16, I have been chosen and appointed by God to bear fruit. Ephesians 2, 6 says, I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, even as I speak. Ephesians 2, 10, I am God's workmanship created for good works. And Philippians 4, 13 tells us that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Like I said, that list goes on and on and on. They are the truest things about who you are. So let me encourage you to uh, internalize them, to make them your own, to make them your own uh, because they are who you are as a Christ follower. Next is to be formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. To be formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. It's not an academic experience to learn about who we are in Christ. It's transformative, and not for our own good, but for the good of others. That's the whole purpose. That's why we are still here. If it weren't for the purpose of, of being Christ for others, then the moment we 
trusted Christ, then we should have just been sucked up to heaven. But you're still here for a purpose. We're going to talk about this in more detail next week. But keep that in mind. We are being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. And lastly, live like an ambassador. Live like an ambassador of the king. Appropriate his authority in your life. Display his power in your life to those around you. And I'm going to give you a couple of ideas uh, here. Uh, none of them are new. But my hope is that you will, you will act upon them. You've probably heard this one before. I've said it a, a number of times. I want you to go home today, and I want you to stand on your front porch. And I want you to look around throughout your neighborhood. That is your mission field. God has put you there on purpose to be the, the ambassador in your neighborhood. Now, you might have to actually turn all the way around and look back into the door of your house. That might be your mission field. But that is your mission field. God has called you to that place on purpose. Mark mentioned... Uh, uh, food share and the food share boxes. We, we gave away 300 boxes out there in just a matter of, of just a couple of weekends. Uh, those boxes are going to have to be delivered. They will not stay out in that trailer forever. On March 5th, we're going to deliver those boxes. We're going to actually take those to people. We're going to knock on their doors. And, and if they open their doors, we're going we're gonna to have opportunity to pray with them. We're going to have opportunity to hear their stories opportunity to bless them uh, on their way. Uh, it's just a very small, and I do mean very small way, that we can be ambassadors in our community as a body of believers. So let me encourage you, uh, March 5th, it'll be at 1 o'clock, we'll start the delivery times. If that's something that you want to be a part of, even if you're just a door knocker, we'll, we'll set you up with a team of folks uh, to, to carry boxes and, and to knock on doors and to pray with people. Let me encourage you, out in the foyer, you can sign up uh, to be on that delivery team, and I hope you do. And lastly, as Mark said, mentoring uh, with, the, with students at the Winchester Public Schools. Um, you really can change a life for eternity just one hour a week. Just one hour a week. Uh, one of the students that... that I have met with over the years. Uh, he, he has a rough time interacting with folks. He has a rough time just getting along with other students. But he knew, uh, when I, as we were meeting every week, uh, that I would be there. And he would save up all of, his, all of his anger sometimes for that one hour we got together. It gave me so much to pray for this kid. It gave me so much opportunity to, to speak truth into his life. Even though he didn't know it was coming from Scripture, it still was. So let me encourage you to be a mentor. Like I said, it only takes an hour a week, and it does make a difference. So you can sign up to be a mentor. We mentioned it earlier uh, on the website. Just go under local outreach under mentoring. You can sign up there and we'll we'll get you involved. Well, on Saturday, 
June the 6th, 2020. Jack Stuff found Forrest Finn's treasure. A 32-year-old Michigan man, he was a medical student, solved Finn's poems and his clues, and after two years of search, he found the treasure. Now, as you see in the picture, Forrest didn't die. He didn't die until six months after this treasure was found. Now, Jack Stuff was quoted after asked why he did it. He said, because it was worth it. It was worth it. So let me ask you, how much time, energy, resources, emotional capital, physical effort, possibly pain, are you willing to give for this amazing treasure of knowing the king in a deep, intimate way? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the treasure that is you. You, Father, are more valuable than we'll ever understand. There's more depth, more richness, more extravagance to you than we'll ever know. But spending our lives knowing you better so that we can become the best ambassadors for you is worth it. And we thank you, Father. We thank you for who you are and for your love towards us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.